You know, as you begin the new year, you begin to sort of reflect on the last year. And, and I was thinking about things this morning as I was uh, looking out my window in my basement and seeing all the snow. I am grateful for the people who stay up endlessly during the night to make it possible so that I can get to church on Sunday morning. You know, Wichita does a great job with that. And we have some really dedicated people. And the roads were far better than I would have possibly ever imagined today. And uh, coming in from Derby this way on the, on the highway, I mean, it was just clear and it was dry. And I just, you know, I just was thankful that people do that kind of thing in Wichita. And those that were afraid of the roads need to understand that our people in Wichita do a very good job uh, about clearing things. Now, in the neighborhoods, maybe not quite so much as quickly as they can, but, but uh, they did a great job. And we had some parking lot people that came early this morning and scraped the snow off of that and put some stuff on the ground so we could safely walk. And I watched some of you kind of walk like this, you know. And, you know, I've learned if you just take it slow, you can get anywhere. If you get in a hurry, you're going to be in trouble on this kind of surface. I'm also thankful for the orchestra and the band and the choir that came this morning. You know, these people come regardless I, I did see you walk across the road really, really gently, and I get it. But uh, I appreciate you guys coming, ir- irrespective of the weather and our, our guys on the camera and the guys that, that broadcast the service out. We have some really dedicated people in the nursery. We've got children's ministry going on right now, and there's just a lot of stuff happening, and it's because of very faithful people that come and sacrificially do what we do. I even saw a couple of couples out there helping people park. You know, if you'd like to do that someday and just test drive a few cars, you're welcome to go back there and do that. Just make sure you return it by the end of the service uh, or they'll know that you took it for a spin. But anyway, um, it's just a, it's, a, it's a good time to come together on, on this new year, on this first Sunday of the year. And we're going to go back to the passage in Matthew 7, verse 12, one very small passage today. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for about eight months now been quite some time. We've got a couple of more Sundays left and we're going to finish it. And as we come to the close of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this this, this scripture that many call the golden rule that's nestled in between the thoughts that Christ has given and the ones he's about to give. And I think it's intentionally, strategically placed in exactly the place that it is by the Holy Spirit and by the voice of Jesus. Because I'm not convinced we have the whole sermon recorded here, but I think the highlights of the sermon are recorded for us. And 7.12 is a key passage, and it is a reference back to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to sort of give you a a, a sort of a little funny this morning to kind of test you out. There were two men that were talking about the events that had shaped their marriage over the years. One particular guy had gone to a Promise Keepers conference. Anybody ever been to one of those? Okay, and uh, during one of the messages there, one of the speakers talked about the importance of the husband being the dominant leader in the marriage and in the family. And he was so overwhelmed and so convicted by that message that when the invitation came, the guy walked down the aisle and committed to be the spiritual leader of his home. And then this is what he said. The other guy says, well, how did it go when you got home and you assumed command or leadership of your wife and family? He says, as soon as I got her home, I sat her down at the kitchen table and turned her, told her that from now on, I was going to take charge of this marriage and the family. I am going to make all the plans, and everyone, including her, was going to submit to my authority. Right after that, I didn't see her for three days. He asked, did she leave you? Did you leave her? Did she throw you out of the house? Which one? He said, well, not exactly. He said, it was about the third day when I began to see out of my left eye. I think he was married to your wife. She amened that. Yeah. But I know how you guys act. In his quiet way, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk a good talk, but we know who's in charge, right? Anyway. You know, relating to people is is a challenge, isn't it? In marriage, 
in family, in the church, co-workers, friendships, and even neighbors. And there's a lot that the Bible talks about how we are to relate to one another. And it's not by accident that Jesus, so far in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 1 through 11, has had a lot to say about how we are to relate to one another, how we are to deal with each other in our human relationships, because they can get complicated. Sometimes they can be a little bit difficult, right? Especially if you live with someone like me or like you, because sometimes we wake up grumpy. Sometimes we let grumpy stay in bed asleep. Sometimes we we have a bad day. Sometimes in relationships, at the office, at the plant, even in the church, there are people that are hard to deal with. They are difficult people, and they are hard for us to love, much less like. And Jesus so far in Matthew 5, 6, 7 through 11 has given us some indicators as to how we are to treat one another, how we are to relate to one another as human beings. And he's anticipating and expecting his disciples to do exactly what he's asked them to do. And it's not surprising then that in 7.12, he sort of brings to a close, a culmination in relating to each other and to God in this one verse. Because you see, this one verse is a synopsis, it's a culmination, it's a digest of the Old and the New Testament scriptures. Jesus says that all of the scriptures and all the prophets are summed up in this one verse, verse 12. And we're going to look at how that can become possible. But we must go then to the Old Testament as we look at what the Bible says, the law and all the prophets in the Old Testament, and understand that the Old Testament points us to Christ, while the New Testament delivers us in Christ. And because Christ has arrived, we learn in Matthew 5 that Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he says to them and to us, I came so that they might be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, and in Christ, we too can fulfill the law and the prophets. And how is that possible and in relating to one another? Because in the difficulty and the complications of relating to one another, it's hard sometimes for us to do everything that the Scriptures tell us we should do and how we should treat one another. So I want to take a look at the call of Christ to care for others as he describes for us the word care. C-A-R-E, four points. Point number one begins with C. I must capture the right perspective. There is a point of view that Jesus wants his disciples to grasp. There's an understanding. There's a perspective. And he says and relates to us and to them the perspective in two words. So whatever. So whatever. We would have a tendency, I think, when we read this passage to just sort of go by this rather quickly to to get to the meat or the heart of what Jesus is saying. But the reality is in these two words, there's some very wonderful insights as to how we are to relate to one another. He says, so whatever. The word so helps us understand the perspective that our perspective is to be unrestrained. To be unrestrained. There are no excuses and there are no exemptions as to how we are to relate to one another, and particularly in all of the things that Jesus has just spoken about. What are some things in the Sermon of the Mount that Jesus so far has spoken about? He's spoken about anger, adultery, promises, retaliation, giving, judging, and other things. And he's already given those of us who are his disciples some instruction as to how we are then to relate to one another. And so Jesus in this passage begins with, so I want you to take in context now how you are to relate to one another in everything that I have spoken to you so far. Don't leave a single thing out in regard to how you relate to each other. In particularly in anger, in adultery, in 
keeping your promises in retaliation and giving and judging and so on and so forth. And he wants his disciples to understand that he's not just spoken these words sort of just as, as a passing of time or just so that he could keep them a little bit longer in the service, but he's spoken these things intentionally because he wants his kingdom kids to live out these principles in regard to how they relate, deal with one another. So, take it to everything that I've considered in 5, 6, 7 through 11. So, unrestrained perspective. But there's also a perspective that is an unlimited perspective. Because he says, so, take it into consideration. Everything that I've said, so, in regard to all that I have said, now, whatever. In case there's anything that I have left out, and there are many, Because Jesus didn't have the time to talk about every aspect of how we are to relate to one another. And so he gives us this all-inclusive word, whatever. That is an unlimited perspective. It is a perspective that knows no limitations. It's not that we make a list and in this Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, and, and through 11, and we make, you know, about 14 or 15 things, and we keep a list of these 14 or 15 things and only abide by those because there are many other things in the Old Testament and in the future words that Jesus is going to speak in which he broadens the scope as to how we are to relate to one another. And in, in case there's something that I have, I have forgotten or neglected or have not spoken about, I want you to have that all-inclusive word there, whatever. When I think about that, I hear sometimes young adults, when they hear something, they'll say, whatever. You ever heard that? Whatever. It's not usually a good response. (laughs) Whatever. But here, the word whatever is, is exactly what Jesus, no limitations. There are no boundaries in how we are to relate or to deal with each other. It is an unlimited scope, an unlimited practice. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. We're going to recap during this journey through this one sentence some of the words that Jesus has already spoken about so far. And the first one that I want to reference is Matthew 5, 43. Notice the perspective. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. The whatever here means not only those that I like and those that I love and those that like and love me in return, but I am to also do whatever to everyone, even my enemies. There's no limitations in how we are to practice in the principles of relating to, to other people in our lives according to this verse. Whatever, without limitations. Turn to Luke chapter 10. I want to reference one passage there. It's a beautiful passage about Jesus talking to a religious group, and he was talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. And a man, the Bible says, hoping to justify himself says to Jesus, well, just who is my neighbor anyway? Because who are you referencing? Who are you talking about? And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus replied in verse 30, a man was going down for Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers and stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place that he saw him, passed by on the other side. You know, the Jews that heard this were appalled because, you know, here's a fellow Jew. He's been robbed and beaten half to death and left to die on the side of the road. And here comes a priest, a religious dude who they knew very well, who not only taught the Scriptures but sought to apply the Scriptures, not only saw the man but went on the other side completely avoiding Any assistance to the man. We have another guy who comes who's a Levi. He is a servant of God in the temple. A servant who serves others, who's dedicated to the service of others, looks the other way and goes to the other side and completely avoids any contact with the man. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. Here is a guy who who is hated by the one who is in the ditch, who has been robbed, and who has been left 
half dead, probably on the verge of death. And this Samaritan that he would have never spoken to, never had over to his home for dinner, never would have sat next to in a worship service, here is a Samaritan who looks past his prejudice and has compassion on him. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to them, You go and do likewise. This was strategic in the teaching of Jesus in which he was telling his, his, his disciples that if you hope to follow me, you, you must look past your prejudices and past your, your idiosyncrasies and past your likes and past your dislikes and you must minister to whomever in whatever way you possibly can. So whatever. We must capture the point of view, the perspective, the understanding that we are to be unlimited and we are then to be unrestrained in following the principles of Christ and the attitudes of the Scriptures. And so here we say we see that we're to cultivate the right perspective. Number two, C, captivate the right perspective. The A means stands for acquire the right passion. You see, Perspective is one thing, but passion is another thing. You can have the right understanding, and you can have the right intellect, you can have the right rationale, you can have the right interpretation of Scripture, but unless you have a heartfelt passion for those that you are ministering to. You notice the guy, the, the Samaritan, he had compassion for the guy. Compassion indicates to me that he had a empathy, he had sympathy, he had an emotion, he had an affinity, an affection, he had a love for the man that compelled him to stop and to assist him in his time of need. And that's the same passion that I'm, I think, I think, you know, it's one thing to know what Jesus taught, it's one thing to understand what it's taught, it's, it's one thing even to teach someone else, but there, there, there's a, a limitation then unless we have an affinity or an affection for someone to actually practice what we believe we should practice. Love, passion, empathy. Jesus says here in the text, in the second aspect of this verse, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you. Whatever you wish others would do to you. Notice in this text that there is the word wish. It's an interesting word. In the original language, it means a strong desire. A strong desire. It's more than just I wish, because I can wish something for you but not have a strong desire. So I think the, the English equivalent to this word in this, this passage doesn't really do its justice because it's more of a strong desire. It is an affection here. It is a, a strong love, a passion for someone else. For when I am affectionate and when I am passionate and when I love someone, that love is going to be the driving force behind the activity that I'm going to perform in the process of that ministry or that action. And we see in the text there are three things that I want us to consider as we acquire the right passion. First of all, there's an introspective in the passage. There, it requires that I be introspective. It means that I need to have a a self-analysis, an inward look, to have a contemplative, careful thought process. I need to be introspective. I need to look inside of myself. I need to look within myself to, to understand how I love myself. How do you love yourself? How do you take care of yourself? When you do a self-analysis, when you look internally and you begin to reflect upon how you treat you, you treat yourself pretty good, don't you? Don't you? When you're hungry, you feed yourself. When you're tired, you rest. When you want a new pickup, you go buy one. I got a new pickup, by the way, a Ford F-150. 
six-cylinder, eco-boost, 17, 20 miles a gallon so far. I feel like a kid in a brand new, I mean, I feel like a kid again. There's nothing like a guy in his pickup truck, you know what I'm saying? It just brings back memories of childhood. Because I played a lot with trucks and cars, dump trucks and all that kind of stuff. And if I wouldn't have been a pastor, I might be a, a dirt mover or something. I don't know. I just like big objects, you know. They just fascinate me. So uh, if you see me run around town, it's a blue pickup. It's cowboy blue, by the way. Go Cowboys today. But anyway, uh, I veer off course. <clears throat> Introspective. Exactly how do I treat myself? How do you treat yourself? You know, somebody said there's, there's four stages in life. You believe in Santa. You don't believe in Santa. You become Santa, and then you look like Santa. And I've noticed as a parent, I am Santa. I'm on the way of looking like Santa, but who buys Santa for me? I do. <laughs> I got a new pickup. Merry Christmas to me. It took me about six to eight months to buy that thing. So, Mark, on the joke you pulled on me the other day, <laughs> anyway, just thought I'd take that. How do you treat yourself? You treat yourself pretty good. You know, before I can treat others the way I treat myself, I've got to know how I treat myself. And the reality is that most of us treat ourselves pretty good. And I've got to have that introspective thought, that self-analysis to understand how exactly do I treat myself because once I understand how I treat myself, then I begin to understand the words of Jesus and how I am to treat others. Because if I don't reflect and do a self-analysis on how I treat myself, then I can't fulfill exactly what Jesus is asking for me to fulfill as a disciple. And so I've got to mentally be self-aware of how I treat myself on a regular basis. And we, most of us, treat ourselves pretty well. Not only is it introspective, but it's indiscriminate. Notice he says, you wish that others. That word others is indiscriminate. That is a plural word that has no definitive directive aspect about it. It doesn't say, it doesn't say, uh, that you wish your fellow believers. It doesn't say your family members. It doesn't say your spouse. It doesn't say your parents. It says others. That's a broad stroke, isn't it? It's indiscriminate. It's not only just the people I like, but it's even the people I dislike. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me. Is it for you? Because believe it or not, there might be some people out there who don't like me. I know it's hard for you to imagine that. But there are people who probably don't like you either. And it's hard for us to be Christ and to treat others the way we treat ourselves, especially if we know that they don't like us or that they're our enemies and this others here is indiscriminate. I don't get to pick and choose who I do good to and who I don't good, good, do good to. I'm to do good to everyone. I am to treat everyone the way I treat myself. Everyone. I don't really like that. Do you? I don't have an option if I'm a disciple of Christ. It's indiscriminate, but it's also imaginative. I like that word, and, I, and I, I just like the word imaginative because the text here says, you wish that others would do to you. Now, just in case you miss this, I'm, I'm going to just add this little action. We'll come back to the imaginative. The word you here in this passage is emphatic, and what that simply means is that others may not treat me this way, but I, as a disciple of Christ, am compelled to treat them that way anyway. In other words, I'm not treating them this way so that they will treat me this way. I am to treat this, them this way even though they don't treat me the same. That's hard, isn't it? Because when someone's rude and nasty and ugly to you, how do you want to respond in return? What's the flesh say? I'm going to get even. I'm going to. Right? 
Yeah. It's hard. Even if they don't treat you this way, the emphatic here says, as a disciple of Christ, as a kingdom kid, I'm to treat them this way anyway. But notice it says, you wish that others would do to you. In a relationship, I am to imagine, I am to reflect, I am to be so intentional and so directive that I am to keep a broad stroke, whoever, whenever this happens, I am to imagine in this circumstance, in this situation, how would I want to be treated? And when I imagine how I would like to be treated, then I treat them how I would want to be treated. Take some imagination. And for some of us, that's hard. We don't like imagination. We, wanna, we want concrete, do, 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 you know. We want that. But here Jesus says, I want you to imagine in this specific situation, in the, how would you wish to be treated? And once you understand that, then strategically then move toward responding or reciprocating or treating them as you wish they would treat you. I want you to go to the text then. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 46, notice the words of Jesus in requiring the right passion. To love others more than you love yourself. Matthew 5, 46, we already saw that we were to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But notice he says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's already talked about, as we saw two Sundays ago, when we're to come to the Father and we're to ask him for things, he's sort of compared the way he gives things to us, the way we give things to our children, and he says, if we as earthly fathers give this way to our children because we love them, how much more will our heavenly Father give to us when we ask him? And so he's saying that because God is indiscriminate, because God understands, and because God ministers, then we are to do the same toward others. Interesting, then he says in Matthew 19, flip over to Matthew 19 in your Bible, to Matthew 19, verse 16. I want you to see something that I saw really for the first time in, in looking at this scripture. Now, I've, I've preached and studied and taught this scripture many times. But I've never really saw it in this light. Isn't it interesting how you get a passage that you've read and taught and studied for a long time, and all of a sudden you go, wow, how come I haven't seen that before? You ever done that? Let me show you what happened. This is a familiar passage, but I, I want you to see what I saw this week in Matthew 19. Uh, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Here's a guy who is a religious dude. He's been in church. He's, he's studied the scriptures. He's memorized the verses. And, and he's, he's, he's been a, a law-abiding citizen. He's been a, an exemplary religious guy who has done everything they possibly have. But he's having problems because he knows, you know, even in the, the best of my righteousness, I'm having a hard time understanding because I don't, I don't quite make it. I'm, I'm falling short. So I, I come to Jesus and say, what must I do to have eternal life? And he says to him, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one that is good. And if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones, and Jesus told him, notice the commandments that Jesus picks. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What do those sound like to you? Relating to God or relating to man? It's not vertical, it's horizontal. Jesus knows this man's heart. And he, he's not questioning his love for God, but he's questioning his love for others. And notice the response. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Really? Liar. Imagine someone lying to Jesus who sees past the masks and the facades and the games and the pretense who sees the heart and knows what we're thinking. Jesus then says to him, he doesn't rebuke him, he simply says, if you would be perfect, notice what he says, go and sell what you possess and give it to God. Is that what he said? 
He said, give it to the poor. Remember, he's not questioning his love for God. He's questioning his love for mankind. For he's just declared, I love people more than anything. I've done all that. I've been relating to mankind accurately in my life. Really? Then go take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the people. Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why could not give his money to the poor? Because he didn't love people the way Christ demands of his disciples. You see, he not only expects us to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and all our strength, but he also says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the commandment to the disciple, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to treat others as we would treat ourselves. Because you know what? I love me, you love you, and we are to love each other the way we love ourselves. I know some of you say, well, I don't really love myself, but, but I think You may not like some things about yourself, but you really do love yourself deep down. Things you wish you could change, maybe a nose or height or weight. Many of you started the new year, you know, with all kinds of stuff, promises, weight loss, but you do love yourself. And I think he's saying to his disciples, acquire the right passion as a motivating factor behind your dealing with other people. But then, not only should I commit to the right perspective and acquire the right passion, but I must then, notice what he says, reflect the right practice. For we have talked about now in verse chapter 6, 1 through 7, 11, the whole subject was authenticity. It's one thing to confess or to profess, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but Christ's disciples practice a certain thing, a certain way. It's not the way the Pharisees or the Sadducees are the religious elite, but it's a different sort of practice. It's a different and it's a higher standard than even what man has been preaching and proclaiming in the day of Jesus. And so he's talking about authenticity in our practice of our faith. Notice he says, do also to them. Do also to them. Now the word do is a word that means not just do, but it means an act of kindness. It is a deliberate, intentional act to do it. It's an intentional act. It's strategic. It's specific. It is thoughtful. It is purposeful. Uh, There's there's a phrase that many people use today in church work called random acts of kindness. You ever heard that? Let's do a random act of kindness. That's not what he's talking about. A random act to me seems that it seems to portray an idea or a thought that what I'm doing is not really thoughtful, it's not really considerate, it's not taking their needs into consideration, it's simply just taking advantage and just doing whatever I think they need. And that's not what he's saying. He says, hey, he wants you to be strategic, he wants you to be intentional, he wants you to be deliberate, he wants you to be thoughtful, to have in mind what they need. And so as you think about what they need, you are strategic in meeting that need. Do also to them, because that's how you treat yourself. You're intentional and strategic about yourself, aren't you? Most guys have a kind of a cologne that they like to wear. And you're very strategic when you go shopping for that cologne. And it's very rare for that guy, at least especially me, to try a new type of cologne because there's a, a kind that I like. You may not like it on me, but it doesn't matter. It's about what I like. And so when you are being strategic and intentional, you take the time to figure out what that person likes and you then do also to them. Notice, not only is it intentional, but it's inclusive also is a word that means likewise. It means and includes that as I am doing this unto myself, I am then to reciprocate and do that to them. Take your Bible and let's look at some things that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount so far. We're going to go through these very quickly. So I I want you to see how this whole concept, and this is really what the major point of what I want to say is this, the word do. Because it really infuriates me when people claim they are Christ followers, but they don't really do what he says. 
They're not doing what he asks. They're not living the way he says to live. But they love him. And they're Christians. And they're disciples. But I'm going to live my life just the way I want to live it. That's an oxymoron. That's not reality. Christ's followers follow Jesus' words. Christ's followers are doers of the word. Let's see how many times Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount the word do. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, notice that, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. A doer of the words of Christ. Verse 42, chapter 5. Give to the one who begs you and do not... Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do not. That's a negative. Two negatives, one positive. In verse 14, chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Forgiveness is a doing thing. In 6.16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There's another negative. Do not do that. Do this, but don't do that. In verse 19, chapter 6, verse 20, 19 and 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust can destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 31 of chapter 6, therefore, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. There's a doing. Do not be anxious. And lastly, verse 6, chapter 7, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine. Jesus constantly talks about doing. If you love me, you will obey me. We don't have a choice as disciples. You can't hold on to salvation and live your life any way you want to and avoid the whole discipleship thing. Discipleship is fellowship. It's obedience. It is doing the words of Christ. We're going to see later on where Jesus is going to say at the end of chapter 7 that we must be doers of the word. And so we must reflect a practice now. I, I have the right perspective. I have a love for 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 others that I should, a, a passionate affection, an affinity, a concern, a care for them, now I must then do something with what I've been entrusted. I must act. Or it just becomes a, a theory or a philosophy or an ideology and not a real helping practical aspect about faith. Because that is in essence not what a disciple is. For discipleship is a practiced aspect of what Jesus intends for his disciples. Lastly, the E stands for entrance. We must not only commit to the right perspective, acquire the right passion. We must not only reflect the right practice, but we must engage the right power. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 12. For this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. And the prophets. That word, this is, is an unusual sort of phrase. It is singular. It's singular. It's one. And this behavior, Jesus is saying, sums up all of the laws and all of the prophets. It sums up the Old Testament and the New Testament. To love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and all your heart, that's one. Number two, Love your neighbor as yourself. The two are synonymous. That's how you sum it all up. Because you can't say, I love God, and not love your neighbor. Can't happen. It's part of discipleship. It's part of being a kingdom kid. The requirement that Jesus says is that you must, if you hope to fulfill the law, you must practice this, this commandment. You must practice this principle. You must abide by this rule. You must. That is not an option. It is a requirement from Jesus. But in this requirement, there is a recognition that must happen at some point. And in that recognition, we need to recognize 
this whole requirement is something that in and of ourselves we cannot live up to. You, you, don't, you, you cannot do this on your own. And it's for that reason that early on in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his disciples, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Back to the introduction. The Old Testament introduces us to Jesus, points us to Christ, and the New Testament delivers us in Christ. All of the law and all the prophets and all the things in the scriptures, we cannot do in and of ourselves apart from Christ fulfilling the law and the prophets in and through us and for us. For not only is there a requirement of recognition, but there must be then a release. Once I recognize and realize I can't do this on my own, I have to then release myself from all my self-righteousness and all my self-discipline. How many times have you said, you know what, this person is hard to love, I don't like them, I'm supposed to love them, I can't tolerate them, how do I deal with them? And so, next time I'm around them, I'm going to work on it, I'm going to work on it, I'm going to discipline, I'm going to discipline, I'm going to think, you know, and you, you work all this work up, and then you get in their presence and you just blow it. Ever happened to you? And here we see that Jesus understands that he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees who have tried in their self-discipline and in their self-righteousness to attain a righteousness of their own. But in 5, 6, and 7, he says, no matter how much progress you have made, in spite of all that progress you've made and all that self-discipline, that self-sacrifice, that self-denial, it still falls short of the requirement of God. Because without Christ, there can be no fulfillment of this. And so we must come then to a resolve of complete and utter dependence upon him to make it a reality in us and through us. Because if we come for any other way and any other method, any other discipline, other than my utter complete dependence upon Christ to make it a reality in my life, I'm going to blow it every time. Let's take a look at a passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I just want to read it real quick. Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. We should not relax any one of these, he said, anywhere. Therefore, who relaxes one of these, least of the commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. These guys were disciplined disciplinarians. They crossed their T's and dotted their I's and they had lists and they lived by these legalistic lists and they made sure and when they couldn't, they distorted and twisted them and convinced themselves they were when they reality they weren't. Jesus in 5, 6, and 7 is saying, you're righteous unless it exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all their self-discipline. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But I have fulfilled the law. And through me, you can make this a reality in your life as you put your total and complete dependence upon me. Mark 7, 7 through 11, two Sundays ago, we dealt with this passage. I want to reference it very quick, Matthew 7, 7. Notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount just before this text. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For anyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You need help? Ask him. And he who is a sufficient, all-supplying gracious, giving God will come to your assistance and he will love even the most difficult people to love. He will love them through you and you can fulfill the commandment that Jesus has given in this passage. You will be able to treat others as you treat yourself and thus fulfill all that the prophets and all the law has indicated. Just ask him. Depend on him. Rely on him. 
Trust him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mary said all things are possible with God. You can't do it on your own. No amount of discipline, dedication, and list checking is not going to help you treat your spouse as you want to be treated. Imagine if you treated your spouse the way you wanted to be treated. How would that improve and help your relationship? Well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. All you got to do is ask. What if, what if that difficult coworker <laughs> that you're probably going to meet for the first time Monday because you've been out, you know, been away for a while, and every time you're around them, you just can't seem to muster up the discipline to love them, to like them, and to treat them the way they deserve to be treated, the way you want to be treated? What if you ask God? Well, I'm going to work today. I cannot, in all my self-discipline, make this a reality. It's just not going to happen. You know who they are and how they are and how they, how they act, and I just have difficulty. But, Lord, I know you can do it in me and through me, and I'm going to depend upon you, count on you, to love them through me. And I want you to show me how, as I learn how I treat myself, to treat them the way I would want them to treat me. They, they will not reciprocate. Even if they do, that's not the end result. The end result is us becoming more like Jesus. It's not so that, you know, tit for tat, I can, I can, I can get something in exchange and return because more than likely they are not going to do that because it's emphatic to you, right? But it's how we treat everyone indiscriminate, who cross paths in our lives and who we come in contact with. I know about you, but that's difficult. It really is. I was coming in, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know if I was going to say this or not, but I'm going to close with this. I was coming into to the church uh, a week ago last Monday, and I was coming in off the interstate and taking the turn, and I was coming on to Kellogg, and as I'm coming in, you know, going uh, west, uh, the people that are coming south also merge over here. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? And those people never merge. Did you know that? They are like clueless. I don't even know why we put signs up. People don't read signs. And so I was kind of listening to my, you know, my Christian music and kind of jamming down, and I was coming around, and I didn't even see the guy, and he came up real quick. And all of a sudden, he was going to hit me had I not slowed down. I jammed on my brakes, and he passed. How do you think I felt? Am I thinking about how do I want to be treated? Absolutely not. I'm going to get even. And so he went in that lane, and I'm going to take that exit. And so I took that exit, you know, and you run side by side for a while to get off the church. And I looked at him and said, did you not see that side back there? What's the matter with you, you idiot? So you know what he did with his car? Threatened me with his vehicle. Yeah, came within inches of hitting my, my old Toyota that I didn't want crumpled before I sold. <laughs> that made me more angry. I slowed down got behind him. Pulled up beside him and said, pull over. Yeah, pull over. He pulled over. He got out of the car. He's this tall. When he saw how tall I was, like this, he goes, I don't think I want any of that. And I proceeded to tell him what a jerk he was for not yielding and that signs were there for a purpose and he was not somebody special who didn't have to obey the law. And he got in his car, and I got in my car, and I came to the office. And didn't take the time I got in my car to turn around and drive home. That was the stupidest thing I could have ever done. Not because I could have been in an altercation, which you would have then read in the news. Pastor Emmanuel gets in a fist fight on Kellogg at the side of the exit of the church. It wasn't that. But it was about how unchristian 
I was. It's hard, isn't it? I have problems with that just like you do. We all have that problem. I don't know who that guy was. I should have taken his license plate, should have called him up and asked for forgiveness. I don't know. Maybe he'll watch us on the Internet. I don't know. All he kept saying is, well, I hope they get some video. And I'm thinking, where's the video? I don't see any video. <laughs> anyway, maybe it might turn up on YouTube someday. I don't know. But I was pretty hot. And I thought, you know, it's hard, isn't it? To think about how I would want to be treated and to treat others the way I would treat myself. And Jesus said, when I do that, I don't only demonstrate my love for God, but I demonstrate my love for others. For in loving others, I love God. I cannot say I love God 